Hey, Rachel. Hello, Brian. So how was your week? You know the feeling when you read an article that says everybody's freaking out about something and you're not freaking out about that thing at all, and then you start freaking out because you think maybe you should be freaking out about okay, it? Okay, you set it up. What What are you not freaking out about that you're supposed to be freaking Substack. out about? Substack. Everyone's freaking out about Substack. The newsletter Apparently. thing? What is there yes. to, to what is there to freak out about? I it's don't a... I don't know. As I said, I'm not freaking out about it, but I'm freaking out because everybody else is. Okay, Rachel, let me like make this super easy for you. You do not, you are under no responsibility to freak out about Substack. There are plenty of things to freak out about, and we will get to them now. This is Nope. The podcast where we shut it down. We're just a couple of New York Jews talking about the news, beating back the blues. Podcast and news why had to laugh so we don't cry. Come and join us for the ride. Welcome to know. Okay, Rachel, we have a guest. Yes, a very special guest, Jessica Winter, who is an editor at The New Yorker, bup, 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 and the author of a new book, The Fourth Child, uh, her second novel, which just came out last month, and it's fantastic. I just finished it today, and we're going to be talking more about that later. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor to have you, and um, I have to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Lauren Meckling, for making the intro, so thank you, Lauren. Love you, Lauren. <laughs> we all love Lauren. So yeah, Jessica, feel free to jump in on any of the nopes when you have your uh, nopey opinions and uh, we'll have you up from you and then we'll talk about the book. So sounds good. Rachel, uh, anything, uh, anything interesting in your world this week? The main interesting thing in my world is that I've been reading Jessica's book on my Kindle, <laughs> and I that. never, <laughs> other than that, I never really paid much attention to these ads for books that they serve me when I open the device. But this week, I started. Wait, you noticing, get ads on your Kindle? I get ads on my Kindle. Um, Josh got me the Kindle. It was a gift, so I just thought that like that's how no, you it can goes. pay. An, you and, can pay an a tw extra twenty dollars yeah, and not this. get the ads. Yes, Who wants this ads is the whole schmagoo that I'm leading up okay. to. So these book ads, like I was like, what are these books? And Amazon knows me better than anybody, better than my husband probably. And this is what they think I should be reading. Here are a few examples. The book with no name by Bhaskar Paul with the following description. Can a gangster who lands in a software company become an entrepreneur? Another one is Rock and Roll Children by Stan Frazier with a foreword by Brian Damage Forsyth, described as an 80s coming of age story where the music is everything. Heavy metal music, that is. And finally, the piece de resistance is Ricardo Ruz Confessions of a Nightclub Owner, which is billed as an inspirational and compelling story of a man who finds God. Presumably it's the nightclub <laughs> Wait, owner things do who not finds God. <laughs> I don't know. So I was like, how do I turn off these ads? And of course, you know, I Googled it. I found this whole workflow and you go into your settings and then they bill you $20 to turn off the ads. And I was like, no, fuck that. I'm not paying Amazon $20 to stop serving me these stupid ads. Um, but like on the other end of the transaction, I was wondering what are these publishers getting for their advertising dollars? Because these are not well-targeted ads. <laughs> They're zero targeted ads. Like what, are you like a heavy metal club promoter or a no, entrepreneur turned these, like, Apple insider? 
This is a colossal are, waste no, of are, money. These are so, self, these are the self-published authors. No disrespect to them. They're they're hustling it, and uh, okay. they want they want to get eyeballs. And um, they, they got they, them. <laughs> it's obviously neither neither a targeted match for Jessica's book nor a targeted match to your eyeballs. So it is a fail. It is a fail. It's but... a fail. It's a fail. Okay, so that's I'm sorry, the most exciting thing that happened to me that. all week. <laughs> Well, for my week, I guess I would have to summarize it by saying this was not the week to start a smoothie diet. Um, and you know, I'm not one for fad diets, but I've lost a lot of weight since COVID. And um, uh, I kind of hit a plateau and I was a little desperate for something to break through the plateau. And then I read this article um, from GQ and it's a journalist who's a skeptic like me. And he ran into this uh, trainer who's like the trainer to the stars. He's the guy that makes like Tobey Maguire, who's kind of flabby, like fit enough to be Spider-Man um, mm. and Seth Rogen. So I'm like, oh, OK. And he thought like, oh, it takes six months. But no, it takes six weeks. Um, and the guy's name is Harley Pasternak. He was the star. He's like, a, I guess other people know him. I didn't. He was the star of Revenge Fitness with Khloe Kardashian which ran for oh. years and I'd never heard of it. Um, but he's actually very well trained. He's been doing it for 30 years. And he has like a 15-day a, a program to start shedding pounds immediately. And the guy was a skeptic, the journalist. And then he said it actually worked. So, okay. So I'm like, if I'm going to fall for anything, this is what I'm going to fall for. And the gist of it is that each day... Uh, you have two smoothies and one green soup and you make it all in your blender uh, and it's healthy and satisfying and you get all your macros, tons of protein and fiber and so forth. However, this was not the week for it. Why was this not the week? Number one, I got my second shot of the vaccine today, which in and Congrats. of itself can make yeah. you woozy. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> if I'm feeling a little woozy, I'm not sure if it's because of the vax or the smoothies. I hosted a big event on Zoom last night <clears throat> And, um, you know, it's always a little like disconcerting when there's all the faces, but they, they sort of started to like blend together. And I think I was like hallucinating a little bit. Um, so that wasn't a good thing. And then this was a, like one of the busiest weeks of the year for me at work. And I actually went into the office and two nights ago, it was 9 p.m. I was working super late. I hadn't brought enough food with me for the day because you have to like pre-pack your smoothies to bring to work. Um, and uh, I had to go home and it was pouring rain. And I said, perfect night for an Uber. I looked at the Uber. It was $90. It's normally like $25. I was like, screw it. I'm going to make a sprint for the subway. I sprint to the subway. I race down the stairs. My head is like spinning a little bit. I get to the bottom. I realize I forgot my wallet, which I would normally never do. So I sprint back through the rain to go to the office. Turns out that because it had just passed 9 o'clock, the elevators were locked. And of course, I didn't have my key card because it was in the wallet that I forgot. So I had to track down the doorman, convinced him that I really worked there without my ID, had him let me back up, lend back down all the way through the through the rain again, through the turnstile, and I almost fainted on the platform. So um, the final Not thing about this- Not a good week for smoothies. <laughs> no. So no. I, of course I was like tracking my calories and my macros on one of these apps. And at the end of the day, the little reward you get is you say like, I finished eating for the day. And it tells you, oh, if you ate this much in five weeks, you'd weigh X. Um, which isn't really true, but it's a nice, cute little thing to do. And when I hit submit at the end of the day, it said like, this is not enough food to sustain human life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we declined to give you a projection. 
well, you cannot encourage this behavior. It's you're uh, one day closer to your revenge body. So. <laughs> Chloe Kardashian watching. It's all worth it. I'm gonna I'm gonna battle Seth Rogen. Um, okay, that was my week. So Rachel, let's do some notes. What do you have? Let's get into the notes. Okay, so um, this week brings our third, but certainly not our last installment in the Matt Gates saga. Um, last week, we talked about the trip to the Bahamas with the hand surgeon. And when we finished recording, I saw that more news had broken during the podcast, which is that Matt Gates apparently used Venmo to reimburse his friend Joel Greenberg for prostitutes and kept his Venmo transactions public until last week. Um, and that also that Joel Greenberg has been cooperating with prosecutors for several months now. So he flipped Long ago, not just recently, as Ven- we Venmo thought. Venmo is now like the Watergate papers of the the modern era, <laughs> like you know, the or the white the Nixon tapes. Like, cover your tracks. Like, how hard is it to to, to put I the mean, setting to private? Really, it, I, he's making it so easy for the FBI. Oh, Maybe he's thought, a, like the FBI had to get like <laughs> wiretaps and like. Maybe you he's know, a Venmo exhibitionist or something. Maybe he wants to show how, like, <laughs> he wants look how brag. easily I get prostitutes. <laughs> <laughs> I pay them out in the open. I'm brazen. Yeah. So nothing to be ashamed of. Or maybe right. Maybe the climate of corruption was such that he felt like this was nothing to this was nothing to No, hide, it's peer pressure know? to show how brazen you are. Yeah. To show what I can get away with. Okay. So he did this on Venmo open. So this is all not good. So we now also know more about this trip to the Bahamas in 2018. We know there were three separate flights, two private planes, at least five young women a congressman, a hand surgeon, and a partridge <laughs> in a pear tree. Um, Matt Gates flew commercial and met everybody there. And who is everybody? We we don't know exactly, <laughs> but we, we do know is that besides the women, there was uh, Matt Gates, Halsey, a guy named Halsey Bashirs, who at the time was a state legislator, uh, Dr. Jason Perizzolo, who we know, the hand surgeon. And where is Halsey Bashirs now? He abruptly resigned as the secretary of Florida's Department of Business and Professional Regulation in the winter, blaming COVID. Like, oops, I got COVID. I have to resign from my job. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. All these people, all these people have the most random jobs. The like tax collector of Seminole County, the director of business operations for the state of Florida. Like, can't they find any real bureaucrats? Just like like normal bureaucrats? No, they're all corrupt. And so, and then you ask, what about Dr. Pirazzolo, the hand surgeon to what the about stars, Dr. the marijuana entrepreneur? He told his patients this week that his office was closed due to a family emergency. And if by family emergency, <laughs> you mean implicated in a child about sex to be indicted, scandal, then, yes. <laughs> then yes, I guess that qualifies as a family emergency. But um, who wasn't there in the Bahamas was Joel Greenberg, the former Seminole County tax collector who started this whole thing. And why wasn't he there? He got into a fight with Dr. Pirazzolo's girlfriend, according to an article in Politico. I don't know what the fight was about. The plot thickens, yeah. Yes. (laughs) I want to know, like, what happened there. A hand enlargement went awry. Maybe the hand got too big or too small. He tried to enlarge Dr. Pirazzolo's girlfriend's hand. Yeah. It's Florida. It's Florida. Yeah. (laughs) Joel Greenberg tried to do a hand enlargement. (laughs) (laughs) Amateurs should not try this surgical procedure. Leave it to the experts. Not at home, certainly. (laughs) 
So in addition to that, there were a couple of other interesting revelations. Um, we learned this week that Matt Gates's phone was seized last winter by investigators and the phone of his fiance, Ginger Lucky. Um, it was taken on her way to work at a company called Appeal that reduces food waste, which is a worthy cause. But girl, <laughs> what are you doing with Matt Gates? You know, so. Okay, so anyway, we know now why Matt Gates was suddenly begging Donald Trump for a pardon at the end of last year because right. a he search knew, warrant he knew was executed, was coming, right. his phone was taken, he's part of this investigation. Okay, and so then there's this whole new allegation, which is that Matt Gates may have tampered in a local Florida state Senate election by running a sham third party candidate to take votes away from the Democrat who was running against his ally. Wait, right? did we have so, a story like last year, the year before about uh, someone who has pr decided to try to screw up a, an election by running another opponent in a primary who had the same name as his they appointment do that, to siphon off? This is off. a thing that people do. This, I don't know if that one had anything to do with this, but there are other third party candidates that have been tied to this one <laughs> lobbyist that, okay. um, who was involved. So this is so, his, he has a specialty then. He has a special, <laughs> yes. So this was a whole scheme concocted by Gates and his lobbyist friend, a guy named Chris Dorworth. And um, there was in fact a third party candidate who entered the race very late in the game named Justine Iannotti, who sent out flyers with a stock image of a black woman <laughs> that said, Justine Iannotti will always be here for us. Wait, even don't though tell me she's not black. Don't tell me she's she not is, black. She is, not only is she not black, she is white. <laughs> and, and she will not ever be here for us because where is she now? She moved to Sweden. <laughs> okay. Wait, so it's a stock photo. And a, a black woman in the district who is neither black nor in the country. Not anymore. She she fled. And where is this lobbyist, Chris Storworth? Well, this week after the story broke, he mysteriously disappeared from his company's website. Nowhere to be found. So to sum up, okay, Halsey Bashirs resigned. Dr. Pirazzolo shut down his office. Justine, Sweden. Chris Storworth fired, disappeared. But Matt Gates is still there. Still has a, a cushy brand. government job. Yeah. He's yes, leaving he, a, a wake of destruction in his wake. Everything he, he touches gets indicted. Or, yes. 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 But he is the firebrand Florida man fighting the good fight. He will not be cowed by these feeble attempts by the left wing mob to cancel him. He is standing his ground. And even though his defenders are few and far between. So far, it's only been like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan who have publicly offered their support. The Republican Party is not really denouncing him either. So this is like the biggest nope of all. So Florida Senator Marco Rubio said um, yesterday that Matt Gates quote, is pretty firm in his denial. So we'll have to just wait and see how it all plays out, which doesn't that remind you of wait like what Trump, Trump said? Yeah, he always says, wait yes, and see. Yeah. Wait and see. Or like Putin said, oh no, I didn't interfere in your election. Remember he said that in yeah. Helsinki, he was like, he denied it very strongly. So I don't know. I don't see why he would interfere. Right. Yeah. It's also like, like, how, like you guys have said, it is the dry heaves of the Trump era <laughs> because during the Trump era, something completely outrageous and unforgettably insane would happen every single day. 
and some insane character would walk on the stage and then walk off. And then you wouldn't remember any of it because something crazy would happen the next day with another walk-on character. And then after a while, you just start disassociating. But somehow the person at the center of it all just remains and remains and yeah. remains. Yes. This is, this is, that's exactly right. This is, this is a, a movie waiting to happen. This is a Netflix limited series. Yeah. Like with the, this is a Robert Altman movie. It's a Robert Altman movie. Yes. (laughs) So many characters. A lot of overlapping dialogue in this movie. (laughs) A thousand people in the cast. Can't tell who's saying what to. (laughs) Absolutely. Can I just share my like extremely 1980s take on my, on Matt? This podcast is nothing if not 1980s driven. I was inspired by the Crystal Gale reference on this show. I felt so empowered. By that. So, okay. Whenever I think of Matt Gates, like right now, when I close my eyes and think of Matt Gates, all I can see is if there was a spitting image puppet of Charles Rocket. Yeah. Charles Rocket. I don't remember that. Like, all I can see is like the guy who played Bruce Willis's brother on Moonlight. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. But like made out of paper. Right. Right. Spitting image reference. That's good too. Not a lot of people are going to get that in the younger generation. No, that's perfect. Because yes. Matt Gates has such a distinctive like physiognomy and it's it's revolting. And it's hard to put your finger on exactly why. He is a spitting image puppet. I was thinking more like Max Headroom. Oh yeah, yeah. He, he does yeah, have a lot of forehead, and then like a lot of like. Angular, and if you have like, that, yeah, and if you have that much forehead, don't accentuate it with even more like with a swoop, there. With the yeah, fascist he, swoop, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so he's Max Headroom with a but fascist he's, swoop. He's like large and immovable. Like you just can't get him out of your life. You can't. He's not going anywhere. Um, he's like a Stonehenge. Yeah. He's like a plinth. He's like foundation <laughs> miles into the ground. <laughs> He's hard. He's hard to overturn. Yeah. So, I mean, the only Republican who has called for his resignation is um, Representative Adam Kinzinger from Illinois, who should just like at this point leave the party. Um, Right. I mean, and there's Liz Cheney, who is the third most powerful Republican in Congress who voted for impeachment only to see Matt Gates fly to Wyoming and host a rally denouncing her. So what does Liz Cheney have to say about all this? This is the most appalling thing she of all, must I be, think. She- nothing, nothing. She, you'd think she would be outraged, but I saw an interview on Face the Nation where Liz Cheney invoked what I like to call the daughter's defense. Um, did you see this? Yep. Uh, I didn't yeah. see it, but yeah, I did. Yeah, where she, you often see men using this defense, but it was the first time I've seen a woman say it. She said, as the mother of daughters, the allegations against Matt Gates are sickening. Um, I, I just hate when people say this because it implies that the only reason you could possibly feel empathy for children who are sex trafficked is if that person is the mother or father of multiple daughters, not just one daughter, right. daughters, plural. Right. Well, men are incapable of uh, caring about sex trafficking. They all want in on the grift. Like, how, right? how would they possibly know? How could you understand what it's like unless you have a daughter? Um, yeah. So she, um, I, I don't know if it's so sickening, why don't you call for his resignation? This is a person who used Venmo to pay prostitutes, right? But she said, no, she's not, she has no comment about that. So I don't know. There was a time when these allegations would cause, if not an immediate resignation, then at least like 
a public outcry of like <laughs> both parties, but so far, except it's I, just like you and me and Rachel Maddow are the only ones who care about it. So yeah, like what will it take? I don't know. Are they waiting for the videos and then what will they say? Nothing. Like, nothing. Yeah, it doesn't matter anymore. So, Could we nope this? So nope to Matt Gates. You need to go immediately. Um, I was predicting he would resign last week, but um, now I know he's going to be arrested any day now. <laughs> That's the only. You don't have to resign. You don't have to resign if you're arrested. You could serve from from in jail. Didn't that guy from Staten Island do that? I think he, I think you don't have to He served from jail? Oh, okay. Well, that's I'm not sure. I'm not a parliamentarian, so I'm a constitutional lawyer, so I don't know the answer to that. If anyone, if anyone's feeling behind on the Matt Gates journey, the the Wikipedia controversies section is really comprehensive. Whoever is keeping up with that is is doing a great job. So hats off to you. Well, that is a great, that is a great segue into our next item that I'm going to do here, which is, uh, this is uh, a a cutting edge piece of investigative journalism in the cut by an (laughs) author named Laura Bassett. Um, And I was just floored when I read this. And at first it looked like a, just another cute novelty trend piece, but she went deep on this into a dark, dark place. So she she was dating a guy and the guy texted her and says, have you seen your wiki feet profile and sent the link? Um, And she writes, I was pretty shocked. So she clicks through and sure enough, there is a profile of her with pictures of her feet, um, many of them. And she says, I was pretty shocked to be looking at my own WikiFeet p- profile, which included my full name, birthday, and photos of me and my exposed feet dating back to a family vacation in 2013. Um, apparently they had been culled or scraped from her Instagram profile, but the thing that offended her the most is that on a scale of one to five, she got a 3.5 consensus stars, which is just okay. It's worse Um, than getting a one. I know. (laughs) Well, no, I'd rather get a one. (laughs) Yeah, I'd rather get a one. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 3.5. Okay. So it turns out, not surprisingly, WikiFeet is a big thing. Uh, it gets 3 million unique visitors a month, and it has 50,000 active users, which leads me to believe there's a high ratio of viewers to users. Um, so Lauren tried to figure out, she said, I'm going to figure out who my foot stalker is. So she devised this little thing where she would post a picture of her feet to Instagram, wait for it to show up on WikiFeet, and then see who had just viewed her post. Um, and like a honeypot, except yes, feet. Yes, except feet, right, exactly, <laughs> honey badger. Um, and she, it worked to a certain extent. She narrowed it down. She couldn't get it, so she just did a post on Instagram that said, if you are the person posting my foot content, please DM me. No shade, I just have questions. And she got a response. His name is Robert Hamilton. He's a 58-year-old salesman from northern New Jersey, not Florida. Uh, He said, okay, what questions do you have? I admit I posted. If it bothers you, I apologize and will not do it again. So this was the perfect opportunity, and she went ahead and did a QA and a with him um, that is bracingly honest. So he became a foot fetishist when he was six years old. He had five sisters, and they would have pool parties, and his sisters would have their friends over, and uh, they would, he would give them foot massages. And then when he was nine, some new families with some daughters, older girls, uh, moved in on the block, and they would play a game where they would tie him up, tie him up, and tickle his feet. 
um, which sounds a little janky, but who am I to judge? The, this is uh, like a superhero origin story. Sorry, yeah, the, 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 <laughs> the, jest, the jest of children. So here's the question she asked. How did you first discover my feet? And he says, I can't remember how I first discovered you, but I looked on Instagram and saw you on there and you had a lot of barefoot pictures and I just followed you. That was all. And I also like your dog. I like Pedro. He's cool. Your feet are quite beautiful, by the way. So he he's just seems to have, it's interesting that he sort of puts the dog in with the feet. It's just sort of like randomly objectifying things from her life. Um, so he compliments her feet. She says, thanks. What makes a foot attractive to you? And he said, I like the painted toes. I like your arch. The more pronounced, the better. I'm kind of weird with the toes. I like big rounded ones. If it's more square, it's okay, but the rounded is better. I definitely like the soles, but I like the arches. That gets me turned on. Okay, so uh, I'm not here to diss what, uh, what people find attractive. And to be fair, her Insta profile is a little bit of a foot thirst trap. There's a lot of foot content on it, but that's her right. I mean, she's, uh, it's very distinctive. She's on like a brownstone stoop in Brooklyn and she's in a, a handmaid's tail outfit and she's like covered head to toe in the red, but her bare feet are sticking out. Um, and uh, there's a lot of the, like the hashtag best life photos when she's on a beach or something and she's, it's like point of view and she's looking out at her feet on the, on the sea. Um, but so this inspired me to go look at the actual site. So I was looking at her thing. I said, what's on the rest of this site? So it is remarkably tame and not remarkably very low tech. The pics are not salacious. They are not sexual and they have a variety of ways to interact with their foot content. They have a feet of the year competition. They have a gift shop and they have a guild. Um, which is a like guild? the guild. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I don't know. Maybe it's like, do they have to pay dues? Like um, a union? <laughs> unionized foot fetishes. Um, and my favorite was the polls. So they had, they had polls like, um, do you keep your foot fetish secret from your spouse? But then this was strange. They decided to categorize and rank order the responses by country. Um, and they had like, these are the ones that have top to bottom, like a hundred percent, keep it a secret, 99% so forth. And the top three secretive foot fetish countries were Albania, Kazakhstan, and the Palestinian territories. Hmm. You could learn a lot about a country by how secretive their, uh, their foot culture is. I just, I feel like this... This journalist who did this interview was really daring to confront the guy who's been posting pictures without her knowledge of her feet. And she should be monetizing this shit. Like, that's what I think is the weird part about this business. Oh, model. her feet. The she should be getting royalties. The footfluencers should be able to at least like, <laughs> make some money, you know? Oh, absolutely. There's a King of the Hill episode about this. Oh, really? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Both the large foot fetish issue and the monetization issue come together in this episode of King of the Hill. <laughs> oh, my Pe- God. oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Peggy has size 16 feet and <laughs> she gets tricked into doing um, a foot fetish video. She's, uh, she's told that it's an educational video to raise awareness of the beauty of large feet. But she's asked to do things like rub them in, you know, corned beef hash and stuff like that. <laughs> and um and she could make a lot of money. She could make hundreds of dollars per video, 
Um, but she understands at a certain point that it's, it's meant to humiliate her, which might be the founder of the site's objection to large foot fetishes. If, if they, if they kind of angle more toward the humiliation side than the, Oh, it's a good point. So maybe, maybe he's, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Maybe King of the Hill understood that and was able to communicate it better uh, than the, the founder of the Wikifeed site. As but she, I am she amazed down the money. by your plot recall. Like, this is- <laughs> right. there was like a, that was like a same week recap of like Real Housewives. You it's, all, it's, it's all coming back to me. It's quite a moving episode because she's, Peggy has all this money on the table and she leaves it there because, you know, she puts her own self-worth and self-acceptance, you know, ahead of being humiliated for money. She well, puts her money where her feet are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I mean, I give it up for this uh, journalist, Laura Bassett. She asked good questions. It was astonishing to see her come face to face with this person. You always wonder what what's wrong with these people? Why did they do these things? And I think it answered a lot of questions and also raised a lot of questions. Okay, <laughs> let's move on. So big nope to, uh, to the guy who was foot stalking poor... Uh, Jessica, is her name? Yeah, Laura. Laura, Laura Bassett. Yeah. Uh, retain ownership of your feet. They're your intellectual property, and you should be able to monetize them if someone is using them. Okay, uh, I have one more topic, uh, which is about um, dog rehoming. There were a series of stories this week about rehoming dogs. Um, it was burst into the forefront of the public consciousness this week when mayoral candidate, New York City mayoral candidate Andrew Yang, in uh, in honor of National Pet Day, posted a picture of what appeared to be his dog, Grizzly. It turned out that it was his dog that he had given away, but he was sort of claiming it. And it was a, a sort of a sad story because his kid was allergic, um, so he had to give it away. Uh, but he was just so overblown. And he was like, we miss you, Grizz. You were the best dog ever. Just like, let it drop. You did what you had First to do. First of all, that dog looked hypoallergenic. <laughs> It had hair. Oh, you think it wasn't a true, uh, true reason? You think it was a cover? I just feel like, why would you choose to post a picture of a dog that you gave away on National Pet Day? Like, why would you invite that type of scrutiny? <laughs> like, you don't. <laughs> well, it's have like to... uh, it's like Dorit and Lisa Vanderpump on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills with the uh, right yeah. with Lucy Juicy Apple, the apple Juicy <laughs> Lucy Juicy Apple Juicy right <laughs> exactly very obscure yeah. reference so you know the, the the city is in the worst shape it's been in a long time with crime and homelessness and the the economic devastation of covid and this is what our potential mayor likely next mayor i would almost say um is talking about his like just uh, cuz there's a hashtag doesn't mean you have to weigh in like you can just sit this one out right you know? there's also like, like hashtag national corn beef hashtag you don't have to show a picture of yourself like vomiting up corned beef hash <laughs> and saying, I loved it as a kid, but then I'm allergic. <laughs> but I'm, but I'm Put, putting your feet in it. You know? <laughs> okay, so that was that was one item. But this is, um, I'm not going to be able to add a lot to this next thing except for reading reading a chunk of it. So you'll have a to- dramatic yeah, I, so I I A dramatic reading. Yeah, so I'm going to do a dramatic reading. reading. Okay. So this is uh, on Twitter. Um, it's the sad story. I can't tell. So is hot little mongoose the person who is posting this or is they, were they just retweeting it? I couldn't tell. Um, I think they were posting it. Okay. So this is the sad story of a chihuahua named Prancer whose owner, hot little mongoose, I guess, was trying to find a new home. And I'm going to read what, uh, this poster wrote and it is a masterpiece. <clears throat> Here I go. Wait, let me take a sip of water. 
it starts dramatically. In media race, it starts. Okay, I've tried. I've tried for the last several months to post this dog for adoption and make him sound palatable. The problem is he's just not. There's not a very big market for neurotic, man-hating, animal-hating, children-hating dogs that look like gremlins. But I have to believe there's someone out there for Prancer, because I am tired and so is my family. Every day we live in the grips of the demonic chihuahua hellscape he has created in our home. If you own a chihuahua, you probably know what I'm talking about. He's literally the chihuahua meme that describes him as being 50% hate and 50% tremble. If you're intrigued and horrified at how horrible this sounds already, wait, there's more. <clears throat> Prancer came to me obese, wearing, <laughs> wearing a cashmere sweater with a bacon... <laughs> With a bacon, egg, and cheese stuffed in his crate with him. <laughs> like, what, how did that happen? <laughs> take, take Prancer, he comes with his own bacon, egg, and cheese, but just one. <laughs> I should have known in that moment this dog would be a problem. He was owned by an elderly woman who treated him like a human and never socialized him. Sprinkle in a little, sprinkle in a little genetic predisposition for being nervous, and you've concocted a neurotic mess, a.k.a. Prancer. His first week, he was too terrified to... <laughs> Too terrified to have a personality. As awful as it sounds, I kind of liked him better that way. He was quiet and just laid on the couch. Didn't bother anyone. I was excited to see him come out of his shell and become a real dog. His ideal home would be with a single woman, a mother and daughter, or a lesbian couple. You cannot live in an apartment or a condo unless you want him to ankle bite your neighbors. Prancer is available through Second Chance Pet Adoption League. He's in New Jersey, but can be adopted anywhere in the tri-state area. If you've ever wanted your own haunted Victorian child in the body of a small dog that hates men and children, please email me. Oh, also, he's only two years old and will probably live to be 21 through pure spite. So take that into account if you're interested. You know, I have to say, like, there's something to this. Like, it reminds me of that Chinese food restaurant owner who had on the menu, right, right. like, this dish isn't so great. This dish is terrible. But it's like, it it makes you wonder. Like, it makes I you actually, want, it makes you want Prancer. It's a challenge. I wanted, yes, it was a challenge. I was like, I kind of want to get Prancer right yeah, now. Yeah, well, look, like, you got Coco. I'm not saying Coco is anything like Prancer, but when you got Coco, you you knew in the back of your head he was going to grow to the size of a small horse. She, she, yes. She, it, right, and, it, right, and you knew, like, the, the, there's lots of challenges, like getting groomed that come with that, and yet you're like, I'm up for a challenge. The love will be enough, and you went yes. for it, and you're glad you did, right? Yes, yes. I think Prancer, I, I hope that this ad um sparked curiosity in other people just as it did with us because prancer is kind of cute and with the right connection this could be a great dog we don't yeah, know so i'm gonna here i'm gonna give the uh if anybody's interested this is a public service mjwoof at cs.com that's who you should email if you want prancer or a shot at prancer i think there's going to be a lot of competition for prancer now after this provocative <laughs> I think so, <laughs> So I took a look at their Facebook page and apparently the folks at this shelter have been inundated with press requests and interviews and inquiries, but they haven't gotten many solid leads on an actual home for Prancer. Oh my God. Um, so, so we got to keep pushing for Prancer. Wow. Yes. 
You're doing the deep dive research. Do you want, do you want to be our well, researcher? <laughs> <laughs> For me, the line, yeah. the, the line is your own haunted Victorian child. In the yes. Yes. Dog. I, mean, I think that's the edge of the marketing that they need to push. I think people yeah. want a ghost dog in their life. This, this, this person yes. is clearly a humor writer, right? I mean, it's this was They're a really good writer. Yeah. yeah this was really good ad copy. Yes. Yes. Julie, Julie Klausner or Andy Borowitz <laughs> or someone because mere mortals cannot write copy like that. Okay, so nope to whoever is giving, I guess, yep for their amazing prose, but nope for giving away Prancer. You don't know how good you've got it. Yeah, you should keep Prancer and, and uh, have hope with As Prancer. soon as Prancer leaves, you'll wish he was back. So nope yes. to whoever you are, mongoose person. <laughs> <laughs> Go stay with, stay with the Prancer you know and love. Okay, uh, Rachel, we want to talk to Jessica a little bit about the book. About her new novel, The Fourth Child, which, um, as I said, I just finished reading it today, right in the nick of time. And it's so good and so topical uh, in terms of all the culture wars that are raging right now. And you really gave life to that. Um, Could you give our listeners a summary of what The Fourth Child is about? Sure. Um, It's about a woman named Jane who fell pregnant as a teenager. She's a devoutly Catholic uh, teenager with, I think, some big hopes and dreams for where her life is going to go. But she gets pregnant. She gets married very young. She has three kids very young. And by the time she's in her early 30s, she goes a little off road and starts feeling the buildup of the kind of, you know, frustration that her life hasn't quite gone in the direction she wanted to. And she does two pretty destabilizing things to deal with that kind of restlessness. Um, She adopts a child uh, from Romania. Uh, This is in the early 90s when those institutions were opening up. And she joins a local pro-life organization. Um, The book is set in my hometown of Buffalo, where there were these massive, massive anti-abortion protests in 1992. Um, So it kind of took off from, from those events. I have to jump yeah. in here before we talk about yes. this because it is rare that I get to use this information in real life. But I have visited Romania and the post Ceausescu years in 1993, and I went into oh, wow. humanitarian work with orphans there uh, oh, wow. who had HIV. And I say that not to sound like a saint, but just to say, like, wow, you got <laughs> that is not, I'm guessing, not the point of the book, but you've got my attention with this. Uh, with this sort of B plot. Uh, so what, did you research that part of it? Did you like, how, how big a part does that fact play? Well, I, when I had my first kid a few years ago, I, I became um, really interested in attachment theory and I was reading really deeply on attachment theory. And I think if you, if you read deeply enough on attachment theory, you end up reading about what happens when attachment is disrupted or destabilized, or in the case of the Romanian orphan, uh, in the case of the Romanian orphans, attachment just doesn't happen at all. Th- those kids weren't attaching to caregivers. And so when they did find homes, um, many homes in North America, thousands of families in North America adopted these children, um, they did not have the foundation to, uh, for, for attaching to family members, uh, attaching to a mother or a father. And those families and those children um, were, were so challenged in terms of adapting to this new environment to say nothing of, you know, going to another country, learning a new language and everything that goes along with that. They also didn't, in a really literal sense, they didn't know how to love or be loved because of the trauma of their, um, of their early life. And, um, you know, the reason 
why these institutions existed, why they had to exist, why all these children needed to be in orphanages is because contraception and abortion were completely banned in Romania. Mm. Um, And to me, there was this really interesting temporal connection between that crisis of the early 90s and also simultaneously in the early 90s, these crazy anti-abortion wars that were happening in America and in my hometown. So I was trying to capture that through you know, this one pretty ordinary family. So I never, I never thought of it in that way. It was never presented to me in that way. I mean, a lot, they obviously didn't ban drinking because a lot of these babies had fetal alcohol yes. syndrome mm-hmm. and, and HIV. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, I can't believe you're saying, I mean, this wasn't what this discussion was supposed to be about, but I'm so, so moved by hearing this because the babies were just lined up in like these little cots uh, in a huge, you know, Stalinist orphanage, and the nurses were working so hard, and they would go and hug and cuddle them for three minutes that they had, and then move on to the next one. And you could see that these infants were just craving personal connection. Um, but there was only so much staff and so much time in the day, and nothing's the same as a mother um, or a father. And uh, it's so interesting to hear you say this. I'm I was going to read the book anyway, but I'm definitely reading it. Yeah, now. it's really heartbreaking. Um, and I know I I know the book is uh, literary fiction, but when I got to the halfway point, I was like, this is sort of in the horror genre <laughs> with this child that can't form attachments who, you know, I felt very sorry for her, obviously, but not as sorry as I felt for her um, siblings and this mother who was almost stunted. And as you said, made this destabilizing decision. Um, how did you like, was it from reading all of these books about attachment theory that you were able to develop the character of this child who could not connect with anybody? Yeah, I mean, I did a lot of research. There's, there was a giant study uh, called the Bucharest Early Intervention Project, where you can read a lot about um, these children's experiences. And, you know, some of them ha- have grown up to be advocates for, you know, themselves and for uh, foster children and adopted children all over the world. Um, and it, it's striking to me that it's much easier to find accounts of raising these children by adoptive parents than it is to find accounts of, of these children's lives by the children themselves, who are obviously yeah. all adults now. And so for me, it was just, it felt like a huge responsibility to really get it right and, and give a voice to someone who, um, you know, doesn't get a voice very often. So um, yeah, that was a, a big challenge and and something that I worried about a lot because she you know she is totally disruptive and totally impossible and and her behavior as you said is horrifying at times but it was really important to me to for the reader to understand that she was a person and that there she had reason to have all this rage and there was a reason that she was behaving this way and so that you know the reader can um, achieve a degree of empathy for her as well as her her new family obviously, as you said, this book delves into the anti-abortion movement and the, all of the nuances contained within it. Um, did you come away from writing it feeling differently towards those people, towards the protesters? And do you think, like, one thing I found was interesting was like that these two sides can never fully see each other. It's, you know, in that scene with the protest line and you've got the antis and the, you know, the, what do they call them? The proborts? 
Proborts. Proborts. Yeah. The, um, the antis and... call the pro-choice people the proborts. Yes. Yeah. And they were kind yeah. of just like talking past each other. Do you think the two sides can ever fully see each other? That's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I, I think... I, I think I wanted to, I didn't want to both sides abortion. You know, mm-hmm. I want, I, I, I think in my mind, there's a distinction between um, drawing a, a sympathetic portrait of a pro-life activist and like kind of giving equal weight to either side, because I, I don't, I don't actually think the pro-life side deserves that. But I, mm-hmm. I did want to explore how someone would get to that point, how someone might arrive at those um, ideas and those beliefs, and then how those beliefs would be kind of mugged by reality, I guess. Yeah, you know? and like uh, just personally destructive almost. Yeah. 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 And also how, how, you know, we, everyone has certain moral precepts that they try to hold themselves to, but we fail every single day, like in our everyday life, you know, you don't have to go to a crazy pro-life protest to, to, you know, you can just, you can just go to the grocery store, walk down the street and like somehow, you know, I'm going to find a way to, to, to fall short of whatever my highest. Whatever your ideals. Yeah. 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 I wanted to explore that too. All right, Jessica, could you remind us of the name of the book and tell us where to find you on social media and how we can best support you and your writing and and find more of of what you're doing? Thank you so much. Uh, The book is called The Fourth Child, and it is available at good independent bookstores everywhere. And on Twitter and Instagram, I am Winter Jessica. Great. Great. All right. Great. Let's uh, let's jump into thanks. Great conversation. Yeah. Um, Thank let's jump you. into some yups. Uh, I think we all have them. And Jessica, you have one also. I do. My yup has been widely yupped elsewhere, but it's the new book by my New Yorker colleague Patrick Radden Keefe. It's called Empire of Pain: The Secret oh. History of the Sackler Dynasty, uh, and it yes, is an epic investigation. Yes, of the family behind Purdue Pharma and their role in the opioid crisis. Um, It just came out the day before we're taping and I stayed up way too late last night reading it. Um, And it's as incredible as everyone's been saying. All right. It should go on everyone's reading list right after your book then. Yes. That's what I would Okay. Rachel, what's your yup? This is uh, my most random yup to date, um, but I've got to give it up <laughs> this week to frozen shrimp. Wait, oh my God. Um, <laughs> oh my God. I'm thawing shrimp as we speak because the only thing Seriously? you're allowed on your smoothie diet is four ounces of protein for dinner. And I literally have a bag of frozen shrimp thawing. So you, so right you now. know this trick. I'm a convert. You're, you're I'm a convert. To the script. I'm a convert. But I won't, so I won't I... steal your thunder. Tell us, tell us how to do it. So I've been a lifelong skeptic, um, but I got this cookbook and there's a recipe that calls for frozen shrimp and all I wouldn't make it. I was like, no way, I'm not doing that one. But all the other recipes in the cookbook were really good. So I was like, all right, this is a trustworthy person. Let me try it. So um, I convinced Josh. He was also like, what? No, no, absolutely not. But I convinced him. He got some frozen wild raw shrimp from Costco and I was able to throw it in the instant pot on Saturday after I drank way too much wine with our neighbors because it was kind of like our first day outside interacting with other people without masks on. And I made a delicious shrimp scampi in two minutes in the instant <laughs> pot. Minutes. It was insane. Well, the so... shrimp only take a minute to, to cook, right? Otherwise, they get right. all tough. Yeah. 
Exactly. So you put it in the Instant Pot pressure cook on low for two minutes and um, it was great. So try this at home. Um, yup to frozen shrimp. You heard it here first. I'll let you know how <laughs> mine are. Unfortunately, I'm not allowed to put anything on or in mine. So I'm just going to be oh. eating them shrimp cocktail style, but without okay. the cocktail oh, sauce. Oh, so you got frozen, you got frozen, frozen cooked, cooked shrimp. Yeah, yeah. I'll okay. probably just throw them in like a cast iron pan to crisp them up a little bit or something. That sounds good, right? Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, I'm advocating for frozen raw shrimp. The okay, wild kind. but we can have okay. it. The wild <laughs> kind. Take a walk on the. Okay, my yup. Uh, very briefly, this might sound like a humble brag, but it's really not. So, at my accelerator, which I've said many times, is where we take young startup companies and give them some capital and help them grow. Um, we're trying to recruit a more diverse group of companies, of founders, and uh, we do a lot of BIPOC thing and female founders, and we had never done an LGBTQ plus event. So I decided to organize it um, and uh, partially recruiting, but also like just a community event. We like to sort of, you know, be known and, and be legitimately a, a sort of a center of that community for entrepreneurship. And uh, we were all terrified because, you know, there's they're, they're not a dime a dozen, right? It's hard to find, you know, people who are out and in the community and entrepreneurs. They're all, there's many, many out there, but there's not a very vibrant community of them. Well, we were worried that we would get 20 people. That was my goal. And we had 70 people last night. Um, That's great. Unfortunately, I was hallucinating. So I thought, <laughs> I thought it was 170. Um, but we had five different companies pitching, super innovative, interesting companies. Uh, and it's super cool. It was it, one thing I realized is that not just like quantitatively, but qualitatively, I think people who come, and this is true for BIPOC and female founders as well, people who come to startup world with a different life experience sometimes come up with ideas and approaches that the rest of the world doesn't think of. So the companies that were pitched, a lot of them at first, you were like, wait, what? That's Is that a thing? And then you stop and think about it and you're like, wait, that is a thing. Like, how did nobody ever think of that? Um, so it was a great night. Uh, and um, so I guess my yup goes to uh, LGBTQ plus uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, there are lots of you out there make yourself known and uh i'm trying to found a community to support you so there you go awesome that's great all right that's my little virtue signaling there <laughs> um okay uh well that's about all time we have for this week we've been getting great reviews please if you've enjoyed this podcast rate review subscribe and buy jessica's book um it's been a terrible terrible week but it has been a fun podcast to record thank you for listening this has been nope the podcast where we shut it down.